All right, how are we doing today? All right, good, good. Welcome to everyone here in the auditorium, those watching online, and everyone in the venue as well. Thanks for joining us here at Carnegie Free. We are returning to the pressure cooker this morning as if we ever left it. We've been in it for a long time, um, but we have titled this message series in 1 Peter, In the Pressure Cooker, because that's what first century Christians in modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor, were living in when the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to them way back in about 60 A.D., and that's what many of us feel like we're living in today, is a pressure cooker in which things are constantly changing, and there's an intensity though, that we feel, there's a fair bit of suffering though, that many of us feel these days, and fortunately the scripture speaks to that a lot, and it does so though, this morning as well. Throughout the series, while well, we've been encouraging you to do this basic Bible study method called SOAP, and you might remember this, SOAP is just scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And perhaps uh, you've gotten away from this over the past few weeks when we did the Better Together series. Now would be a really good time to get back into it as we finish up 1 Peter in these next four weeks. At the end of your outline each week, there's a little note about what you can do your SOAP note on the next week. And when you do SOAP, it's just this basic Bible study method where you say, I'm going to take a short passage of Scripture. Today it's 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. And we're going to study through it ahead of time prior to Sunday morning. And I'm going to observe, what are the commands? What are the prohibitions? What are the questions that come up? What's the big idea? Are there any cross-references that I want to look into a little bit more? And then I try to apply it to my life. That's application. And then finally, I pray over that scripture. And in so doing, if you do that on a weekly basis, you will grow in your knowledge and your insight into the most influential book in all of history. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Like, I can promise you, if you do that on a weekly basis, even a couple times, you'll grow in insight into these scriptures. And whether you're a follower of Christ today, or you're just here asking questions, that would be a good thing, to know more about the most influential book in all of history. And so we start there, and hope that you'll continue with that over these next weeks. So as we open here, though, this morning, why don't you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And uh, as you get there, it's in the back of the Bible, right before Revelation. You get to Revelation, you've gone probably 20 pages too far, turn back to the left. Whether you're using a Bible app, or even if you don't have that right now, uh, you can follow along up on the screen as uh, the verses will be up there momentarily. But as, as we go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, you're going to see the very first uh, line in this section that we're reading today is, the end of all things is near. The end is near. Now, what do you think when you hear that? Some of you start to get a little nervous in your seats, and I do too, I get it. What, what, I, what I think about when I hear a pastor or someone on the radio, or in this case, Peter, the Apostle Peter, say the end of all things is near, which we'll get to in a moment, what I think about is all of the prophets and preachers and fortune tellers who have said across so many generations that Jesus is returning and the end of all things is imminent. And what do they all have in common? They've been wrong, right? But that's what I think of. That's where I go to. All these different prophets and fortune tellers and preachers who have said the end of all things is near and they've all been wrong. And they've told us repeatedly over the past centuries that 
Hitler and Mussolini and Kissinger and Gorbachev and George Soros are the Antichrist. And others have pointed to the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948 and argued that within a generation the end will come. And still others have become convinced that the world oil crisis or climate change or cryptic signs related to barcodes and currency or the development of the European Union are all signs that the world is going to pot and Jesus is returning any day now. And they've been wrong. I also sometimes think about um, many other people, though, that I know who hear the end of all things is, is near and this idea of the world's going to a pot, and they say, no, I think the world's getting better. And I have a very, very dear friend who believes that explicitly. No, there might be these momentary regressions, but with the advances of technology and science and medicine, he tells me, the world is actually getting better. And we should expect that it'll keep on getting better. And not only is technology improving things, he says, but also people are getting more and more enlightened. This is something that I would call the myth of human progress. It's a myth. Things are not getting better. Technology might be getting better, but it does nothing for the human soul, does it? It doesn't change the reality of the human soul, the reality of the human condition, the reality of our need before God. These two prophecies that have been proven wrong and the myth of human progress have an effect over time on us. Over time, we read statements like Peter's here, the end of all things is near, and we sometimes chuckle. Or we hear them enough or someone comes and they want to talk to us about this and we say, boy, I have to go to the bathroom. And we exit left. We feel uncomfortable. But even so, I want to tell you that it is an established truth of Scripture, a non-negotiable of Scripture, that one day Christ will return and he will make all things right. That one day Jesus will return and he will set the entire world to rights, including you and me. And one day God's will will be completely done here on earth. And the Bible says that day of victory is a good and beautiful thing. And so the Bible tells us that we are to live like the end of all things is near. You might fill this out in your outline. We're to live like the end of all things is near. Now, you might ask, how do we do that, Adrian? I'm curious, well, what that looks like. Are you trying to give a vision statement that we're going to do a 2021 study through the book of Daniel and Revelation? And a study of the late great planet Earth, and I'm kind of getting excited right now, and other people are starting to feel cringy right now and shifting in their seats. And it, you could certainly do that. You could totally do that. And I've done my deep studies of those books in the Bible, and I'll continue to do so. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. But it's very interesting, as we open up to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Peter gives us some other instructions on how we would prepare ourselves for this basic biblical truth that one day Christ is going to come back and he will be victorious. If you've ever wondered, how do I prepare myself for that? Listen carefully. 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 7. This is the Apostle Peter who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and then gave his life for that fact. 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. How do you prepare for Christ's return? You prepare by praying, by loving, by serving. Let me put it really simple. You pray fervently first because we actually believe that God can do more than we can do. We pray fervently because we believe that God is able to do more than we could do. Peter's very first word of advice for us here in light of the reality that the end of all things is near is that we would pray with fervor. He says, be spiritually alert and sober-minded that we would pray for what God wants done in the world. When we realize that we actually don't have much time left, whether it be that Christ comes back in glory to judge the living and the dead, or he takes us home, when we realize we don't have much time left, then we are eager to pray fervently because we understand our days are short and God can do great things beyond us. Indeed, there was a book title written a number of years ago that is perfect for our busy lives today. The title was, Too Busy Not to Pray. And that's where we are today. We are too busy. We have too many things going on in our lives today to afford not to pray. Prayer is that instrument that slows us down such that we would spend more time with God asking him to do what he alone can do, changing the hearts of men and women, which we know we can never do by our best efforts. If we try to change someone, that's called controlling them, right? But God can come in and change an answer to, to prayer, and he can do what we could never do. My deep prayer for you, frankly, as a church, is this. My prayer is that we would increase the duration and the frequency of our moments with God. That we would have more and more holy moments of time with God for longer periods of time, and as a result, we would be conformed more and more to his likeness because we are changed in his presence. For many of us, that means just beginning with 15 minutes a day. That you choose 15 minutes a day to pray, to read the scriptures, and to say, God, would you please align my will with your will, that I would pray about the things that you really want done in this world. We tend to pray for the things that we really want. But there's certain things that Bible says God really wants done in this world. Like, he, he wants us to have healthy marriages. God really wants us to disciple other people. God really wants us to do outreach to those who don't know Christ. God really wants us to serve and to love the poor. God really wants certain things that are somewhat different than the things we want. And so when we pray according to the words of Scripture and we say, not my will but yours be done, I want to pray more and more in accordance well with your word, we will be surprised at, we'll be surprised at how frequently our prayers are answered when we begin to pray like that. Pray fervently because God can do more. That's number one. Number two is this. Love tangibly. Love tangibly because every person matters. 
We choose to love tangibly toward people, specifically to people, because we actually believe that they matter. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, above all, love each other deeply. Let's say those two first words together, both here and the venue. Let's say it together. Ready? Above all. Above all. Like circle that. Put an exclamation mark next to it in your Bible. It doesn't say second place or one amongst many. Above all, if you do nothing else, do this. Love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Then offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You see, love in the Christian schema is the MVP of all virtues. Love is the MVP. Love is what leads the way for us as followers of Christ. Love is that which would dominate our thinking about other people, dominate our speaking to other people, dominate what we do for other people. It's the dominant virtue through which everything else finds its place in the Christian life. Begin with loving one another. Begin with loving people wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever presenting problem they might have as they come before you. Because love is the virtue that covers over a multitude of sins. You ever had the experience, you ever had a conflict with your wife? To state the obvious. You ever had a conflict with your husband? To state the obvious. You ever had a conflict with a friend? A brother or sister? Here's what tends to happen when we have arguments. I speak over you, and you speak over me, or online, you see this all the time. Facebook, Twitter, where I speak over you, I insult you, you speak over me, you insult me. We really don't hear each other, but we feel pretty good about being right. You insert love into that. The Christian love that's actually able to cover over a multitude of sins. Instead of shouting over each other in the midst of a conflict, try this. Honey, I'm so sorry. We're not hearing each other right now. I really want to be right, and that's wrong. Can we start over again? We're just missing each other right now. Can we start over again? I, I, I want to listen to you. I, I, I want to actually hear you. That's love in the midst of conflict, and all of a sudden, that movement toward humble love enables two people to hear each other. This is what the Bible means when it says, love one another because it covers over a multitude of sins. Humble love covers over pride all the time. Love can bring light into any darkness. It can mend every wound. Indeed, God's love through Jesus is that which mended our wounds for eternity. And when we receive God's love through Jesus and then give God's love from Jesus to others, it grants the opportunity to mend wounds today as well. Love in God's economy is ranked way above religious rule keeping. Love is ranked way above my strength. Love is, love is ranked way above being right and proving someone else wrong. Love is the supreme Christian virtue that covers over a multitude of sins. It's not sappy. It's not sentimental. It's thinking the best of someone. It's wanting the best of every person that we encounter every single day because they are whoever they are, whatever they bring to you. Made in the image and likeness of God, bought with the price by Jesus' blood, and they matter for eternity. 
So you ask, how do I tangibly love this person in the way I think about them, in the way I speak toward them, in the way I act toward them? And I tell you what, that leads the way toward words in a way that leading with words won't get you toward love. Now, to do that really practically, one of the very best ways you can do is the very next line that says, practice hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, practicing hospitality to each other is not getting together with your best friends for pie. I mean, I'm down with that too. I definitely like pie. And I definitely like my best friends, okay? I'm totally down with that as well. But when the Bible says practice hospitality, that's not really what it's talking about. When the Bible says practice hospitality, it's talking about welcoming in strangers. That's what hospitality is. It's showing specific care to those who are not sure that they belong. It's letting them know that we care about you and I want to open up my home to you. I want to open up my arms to you. You might be a stranger. You may not know if you could fit well with us, but I'm going to be sure that you fit with us. It's being in a life group and say, you know, we have room for a couple others. Or it's saying, you know what, I'm spiritually strong enough at this point that I could lead a life group for 10 people who don't have community. Or it's saying, I'm going to welcome people into my home who I know cannot repay. They can't afford to repay. But I will bring them into my home with no expectation of getting anything back in return. It's, I want to get to know someone else's story that has a different background than mine and just learn their story with no expectation except just to learn from them. And hospitality may be more powerful today than it's ever been before because we now live in 2020 with these third spaces, right? We have our home environment, we have our work environment, and the third space is Starbucks or Kits or Baristas or whatever it might be for you, Panera, whatever. And again, those are all wonderful spaces. But isn't there something different? about someone extending the hand of friendship to you by saying, would you come in my home? I welcome you to dine with me. I welcome you to come over and have coffee with me in my home. That says something different, and particularly today, as many people feel strangers wherever they go. It makes me think about when I was 19 years old down at Hastings College, and Pastor Randy and Elizabeth Madison from Hastings E Free Church developed a program to bring college students into their home, and for some reason they chose me. And on a monthly basis, they would bring me into their home, and we would enjoy a meal together with Elizabeth's gloriously good cooking and their wonderful family. And Randy kept inviting me over in spite of the fact that I was a potty mouth 19-year-old, full of pride, had no idea what I believed. Spiritually, I couldn't tell my head fell from my foot. And again and again, he brought me into his home to love me right where I was, in spite of me. In spite of me, he loved me right where I was. He practiced hospitality in an intentional way. And then he said, oh yeah, whatever Bible questions or philosophical questions or lifestyle questions that you have, and I would pepper him with all of my questions. And I was living this way, and he was living this way, and he was teaching me to live this way on Sunday morning, but I kept on living this way, my own way. And who do you think I went to when I fell on my face with the reality of my lifestyle? I went to Randy Madison and he led me to Christ. Because love 
leads the way. He was able to speak something into my heart that made me feel safe with him. When I was a mess, he looked beyond that and said, I will, above all, love you deeply in the hopes that love might cover over a multitude of your sins. Love does that. So how do we live in light of Christ's return? We pray with fervor because God can do more. We love tangibly because every person actually matters. We really believe that. And we serve for God's glory because pride stinks. Pride stinks. Look at verse 10 in 1 Peter 4. Do a little bit of Bible study observation with me. I'll just show you how I observed the text as I was doing my own soap note last week. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. These are the words that I underlined or highlighted as I went through my Bible. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised. So let's just break this down for a moment. Use whatever gift that you received. For what reason? To serve others. I underline to, to serve others. You see, God gives each of us spiritual gifts upon belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. He gave you a spiritual gift. You may not know what it is yet. You go into Ephesians 4 or uh, Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 and see a list of different spiritual gifts that God gives out. I don't believe those lists are comprehensive, but, but they're a good start. And he gave us those spiritual gifts not to feel good about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back, but to serve. My gift for you. That's how I see it. I have a gift that I get to use on Sunday mornings. It's not for me. It's not for pats on the back. It's for you. You have a gift. God blesses you with a gift. You have talents of different kinds. God gave them not for you, but for others. And look at that verse again. He would have us not be successful stewards, but instead faithful stewards. That means there's going to be times that you utilize your gifts, whatever they might be, and you're not all that successful. And that's okay. God ain't mad at you. The goal is simply to be faithful with what God has given you. And to be a steward means that whatever he's given you is on loan to you. It's not yours to own. It's on loan to you, and you get to utilize that for God's glory as if he were working through you because it's his gift in the first place. He chose to give it to you. And then it goes on to say two different kinds of gifts that God gives. Sometimes he gives speaking gifts, and other times he gives these hand gifts, these doing gifts, and either of them are equal in God's sight. Sometimes God gives speaking gifts to people such that some of you in the room today are counselors or lawyers or your speakers of some kind, your teachers, and God be praised, you get to use those gifts. It says, as you speak, speak with the very words of God. That doesn't mean that you have to go around quoting your Bible all the time as you teach. You could do that. It might be a little bit weird if that's all you did. But the idea is you speak informed by the truth of Scripture. As you counsel, as you teach, you're informed by the truth of Scripture. And likewise, God gives other people these hand gifts. I think of nurses and handymen and many others that I see in the room. Uh, accountants, different kinds of people in the room that have these hand gifts, these talents that God has given them. Even the gifts of hospitality, beautiful talent that God has given some people. And whenever you do it, you do it so that in all things God may be praised. Because pride stinks. And people know, people can tell, well, when you're doing it for yourself. And frankly, that 
won't last. So we seek to serve that God would be praised. You know, one of the most consistent statements in Scripture goes like this. God opposes the proud, and God gives grace to the humble. Pride is not just boasting. We know when we hear that how ugly it is. Pride is, it can be this inner disposition that, yeah, I'm pretty good. (laughs) I looked in the mirror today. I got my stuff together. This inner disposition, and, and that really easily can inform the way we serve. Please notice me and all that I bring to the table. But God opposes that attitude. Instead, we say, I serve for your glory, for your honor, that your will be done even in me. This is how we live in light of the promise that Jesus will return. We pray, we love, we serve and bless others with our words and deeds. Now, it still leaves this question. Okay, Peter said the end of all things is near. So when is that coming, Adrian? I don't know. It could come today. You believe that? It could. It come in a thousand years. I have no idea. Jesus said this, and this would guide our thinking. Mark 13 says, no one knows that day. No one knows that hour. Not even the angels, nor the Son of Man himself, while he was on earth. He said he didn't even know that day. Only the Father in heaven. So there's nothing that we can do to hasten the day of Jesus' return. What we can do is live practically today in light of his demands on us related to our discipleship. As we pray, as we love, as we practice hospitality, as we serve. You might be saying, well, it seems like it must be happening soon because we have a pandemic We have these horrible forest fires on the West Coast. We have terrible uh, hurricanes in the Southeast. And and there's a lot of ugly stuff going on. It must be happening soon. When's it coming, Adrian? To which I would say, you know, God has determined that I would be on the welcoming committee, not on the planning committee. (laughs) And by the way, he's determined the same thing for you. And everyone that we meet. Again, 100% of those who said they knew when the day was coming were wrong. We are not on the planning committee. There's nothing we can do to hasten that day. We are on the welcoming committee, such that we would say when he returns, praise God. I'm ready. I've been praying. I've been loving. I've been serving. I've been doing outreach. I'm ready. God be praised. Come on, God. Okay? Whenever that day may come, his victory will arise, and we will give praise. And so, again, we live in this time in between where we say, it's just taking so long. Well, according to Peter, it really isn't taking that long. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, With the Lord a day is like a, a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So it's a long time for us, but maybe to him it's only two days. You ever think of that? Like, who knows how long it'll be? With the Lord is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And then the very next verse, verse 9, Peter gives the answer to why God is tarrying, why God is choosing not to return in spite of the ugliness, though, that we see all around us. And it goes like this. Let's read this out loud together from the screen. But verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Wow, wow. Why is it taking so long? 
Because he's so patient. Because he's so merciful. Because he's so loving. Because he wants everyone. Because he wants you. Maybe you haven't actually bent your knee to Christ. Maybe today would be the day that you would say, this is the day that God has made, that I chose to come to church. Maybe God was drawing me to church today, and with urgency, because Christ can return at any time, and because I can die at any time, I want to get right with God, and so I bend my knee to him. I'm not just gonna play church any longer, not just do church any longer. I'm actually gonna surrender to the sovereign one who gave his life for me to have life. And perhaps today would be the day that God would do something to speak to your heart, that maybe even right now you sense that I am not right with God. Now is the time to say, God, would you please forgive me? I want to be right with you. You've been patient with me, yet you will not be patient forever. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we have a choice to do it today, and one day we won't. Okay. Turn back with me from 1 Peter 4 to 1 Peter 1, just three, three pages back. And it says this, verses 24 and 25. Here's the Apostle Peter speaking to his churches there in Turkey and speaking to us. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and the Bible says this, All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers of the field fall to the ground and the word of our Lord endures forever. And so what it's saying there is though there might be some kind of psychological jump for us to this reality that Jesus could return anytime and so live like the end is near, there is no psychological jump to the reality of living like my end is near. Is there? There's no psychological jump to that at all. Whether we would live nine years or 90 years, life is incredibly short, isn't it? I'm 43 now, and it just feels like it went like that. Our days are fleeting. They're like the grass that's green in the spring, and then it turns brown in the fall. They're like tulips that are beautiful in April and then the petals drop to the ground in June. And so Peter and the scriptures would tell us live like your end is near. By praying, by serving, by loving. Let me just wrap up with this. We all have this choice even this week to live for the dot or to live for the line. Living for the dot is living for my 75 or 80 years here and now. Living for the line is living for the next thousand years after I die. When you live for the dot, prayer becomes nothing more than Buddhist meditation at very best, just a means of centering myself, and at worst it becomes a pointless waste of time. When you live for the dot, you will love those who love you but you will quietly begin to demonize those who don't love you. You won't have motivation to love those who don't like you unless you actually believe that they are made in the image and likeness of God, that Jesus died for them, 
and they too will last for eternity. That they matter to God for eternity. If you just live for the dot, you'll serve to be noticed. You'll serve for my own acclaim. You'll serve because you're a good person in your own eyes. And that's what good people do. But if you live for the line, you'll serve for something bigger than you. You'll serve for God's glory. You'll serve for what lasts for eternity. You'll say, my gifts are for others, that perhaps they would make an impact on other people for eternity. And I'm telling you, friends, if we choose to live like that, by the power of God's free grace given to us through the cross, we will have confidence on the day of judgment, whether we die or Jesus returns tomorrow, whichever one comes first. And I don't know about you, but I want confidence when I come before my God. Let's pray. But Father, you are a good and gracious God. You are kind, you are merciful, and you are loving. You are patient to us when we do our own thing. And yet, as your word tells us though, this morning, one day you will make all things right. You are patient for this time, but one day you will set the world to right, starting with us. And so we would ask, by faith, that you would make us ready. Help us to pray with fervor. Help us to love tangibly. Help us to serve for your glory and not our own. We'll be careful to give you all the credit. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.